0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26. In adult Sunday school, we've been studying the lament psalms, learning how to cry out to God when we go through trials and difficulties of life and what do those prayers look like. Uh, Brother Nathan Brummel gave an introduction somewhat at the beginning of this month by preaching from one of those psalms. Tonight I want to go to the New Testament and go to the prayers of Jesus, in fact a season of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where we hear in a sense an illustration uh, of what this looks like. And to set the context, we, in a sense, need to take a look at the entire chapter. It's a long chapter, and so I'm not going to read the entirety of it first and then go through it. We're going to walk through it step by step. But before we begin, I want to ask you a a question of how is it with you and your prayers, especially during these hard times? Do you find yourself somewhat cynical when it comes to prayer, especially hard things? By cynicism, I mean, do you ask yourself, is it really going to make any difference? Isn't God simply going to do what He's going to do anyway? And if that's the case, do I even pray? Does prayer make a difference? Why should I pray? Those are the kind of questions that sometimes go along with a cynical attitude or approach to prayer. The example of Jesus Christ that we have here tonight, I think think helps to sort through a number of those things. So we're going to give our time and and attention to that. For those of you who are probably watching online uh, by live stream, what I have in mind in our notes is to have two columns, and over on the right-hand side, you have... um, the disciples, and on the left hand you have Jesus. And we're going to compare these two uh, parties with each other going through this chapter. And what you find in the Jesus column is you'll notice that we have Jesus who lives a life with prayer, a life with prayer. And then in contrast to that, you see the disciples who are living a life without prayer. So Jesus on the one side being prayerful, the disciples on the other side being somewhat prayerless. Now with that in mind, let me begin with the scripture reading from Matthew chapter 26, beginning to read at verse 1. Hear God's word and receive it with a believing heart. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now let me just pause here. Imagine seeing Jesus with his disciples off to the side here. I don't know where exactly they're meeting, but at the very same time that Jesus says that this is about to happen, notice what is happening probably about the same time in another location, verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. What we see here with Jesus, if you're taking your notes, what you see with Jesus is that Jesus is in touch. He is in touch with the Father's story. He knows what is about to happen. He tells them what is about to happen. But what's interesting about the disciples is he has told them repeatedly, in fact, three times already. I want to take you back to Matthew chapter 16 and show you just one of those instances. In your notes, I tell you the other two places, but here in chapter 16, a famous instance where... Peter doesn't receive it well. If you look at Matthew 16 at verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And what does Peter do? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. What we see from the disciples is that they are ignorant of God's story. They are ignorant of what Jesus is about to do. They are ignorant of how this is all going to come to pass. Now, look at a second comparison. If you drop down to go back to chapter 26 at verse 6, look at the disciples. Notice how they both view this situation differently. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, you notice on the disciples' side, how do they view this? They view this as a waste of money. This is wasted money. But then at verse 10, but Jesus, aware of of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial." Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. How does Jesus see this? Jesus does not see a waste of money. Jesus sees his burial in this event. Look at another comparison between the disciples and Jesus. Going to verse 14, think of the disciples here. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. So on the disciple's side, we see betrayal. Betrayal. But then, how does that compare with Jesus in the next section here at verse 17? When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, in contrast to the disciple who betrayed him, what do we find about Jesus? Jesus was faithful. He was faithful. He knows that his hour is at hand. He calls them to get ready for the Passover. He is continuing the course that he began on. Well, now we see another comparison. If you look at verse 22, and they were were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? What do we notice about the disciples? They are filled with sorrow and confusion. Lord, is it I? Could it be me? Notice how Jesus is contrasted with that in verses 23 and 24. He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You see, Jesus is long-suffering. He is long-suffering with Judas. He has known all along that Judas was a, of a, was a traitor, that Judas was a betrayer, and yet he has suffered long with Judas. And now the time comes for him to do it. If you look at verse 25, you see another thing about the disciples. It says in verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. You see, Judas is filled with deception." So, on the disciple side, you see sorrow and confusion and deception. Judas knows what he is up to. Judas knows what he is about to do, but he kind of disguises it by asking the question yeah, could it be me? Well, there's another comparison here. If you look at verses 26 to 29, notice this about Jesus. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. What do we see about Jesus here? We see selfless giving. He's giving of himself. He gives his own blood. He gives his own body. He does it at the supper in the form of bread and wine, and he is about to do it when he goes to the cross. What do you see on the other side of the equation with the disciples? Look at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I call this blind tradition, blind tradition. When they sang a hymn, the Jews in that day, when they would celebrate the Passover, they would sing along with the Passover, and they would traditionally sing Psalms 113 to 118, called the Egyptian Hallel. That's because Psalms 113 to 118 recounts the coming out of Egypt and how God delivered them. And then you'll be familiar with Psalm 118. It's in Psalm 118 that we read about the the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Imagine Jesus singing that with his disciples as he's about to be rejected by not only his own, but by the Jews themselves. It's also in Psalm 118 that it says, bind the sacrifice to the altar, Jesus was about to be bound to the the altar, that is to the cross, as the sacrifice for your sin and mine. And the disciples are blind to it. They're just going along with the tradition. This is what they had always done. But they are blind to seeing that it is really Jesus who is about to be bound to the cross in order to sacrifice himself. Well, let's go on here at verse 31. In verse 31, we read this. Uh, about Jesus, he gives them essential information. Verse 31, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. And how does Jesus know that? Look, he quotes some scripture. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What we have here in verses 31 and 32 is what, what I would call essential information. They need to know this if they're going to know how things are going to transpire, what's going to happen. But notice how they respond in verses 33 to 35. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Right, he's already told them that they are going to fall. Now he tells them the when, the what, and the how. gets very specific. When is it going to be? Before the rooster crows. What's going to happen? How are you going to go against me? You're going to betray me. Or excuse me, you're going to deny me. And how is this going to happen? It's going to be three times. Very specific. But look at verse 35. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I call this arrogant, arrogant ignorance. Jesus gives essential information, but they respond with arrogant ignorance. Then look at verse 36. Notice what we see with Jesus. Then Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What does Jesus do in his sorrow? Jesus prays in his sorrow. He prays through sorrow. But look at the disciples and how they contrast with Jesus in verses 40 and 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. We see the prayerlessness of the disciples exposes them to temptation. You notice that? He says, watch and pray. Why? Lest you enter into temptation. But their prayerlessness makes them vulnerable. Now look at these next verses together. I'm going to read from 42 to 46 and then compare and contrast Jesus and his disciples. Again, verse 42, again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Notice this about Jesus. Jesus prays out of a sense of helplessness, and helplessness drives Jesus to prayer. Helplessness drives Jesus to prayer. On the other side, ignorance. Ignorance is what allows the... Disciples to be prayerless. Think about your own lives, congregation. Those nights when you just cannot get to sleep, even though you're fatigued, maybe you've had a long day and you just can't fall asleep. What is it that keeps you awake? Oftentimes it's, a, it's an awareness, isn't it, of things that are going on, things that are beyond your control and, and you worry and you're anxious about one thing or another. Those kind of things will keep you up. Well, what was Jesus thinking about? Jesus knows that that by the end of this night and going into the next day, he's going to be on the cross. And he has to face being forsaken by his father. Of course he cannot sleep, no matter how tired he is. This is on his mind. So what does he do? In his helplessness, Jesus prays. Now those two two comparisons right there. Verses 36 and 39 where Jesus prays through sorrow and then the prayerlessness exposes to temptation and then the comparison right below that, the helplessness drives Jesus to prayer but ignorance allows the disciples to be prayerless. In your notes, just draw a box around those four squares together. I want to come back to them in just a little bit but I want to single them out and highlight them for you before we go on to verse 47. At verse 47, notice this about Jesus. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus expresses a bold self denial, a bold self denial in temptation. He knows exactly what Judas is up to, and he even tells Judas, Judas, do what you came to do. But look at the reaction of the other disciples at verse 51. At verse 51 we read, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Very likely he draws out that sword and he swings that sword. Why? Because of a fearful self-preservation fearful self-preservation. He wants to fight to preserve his life. What's at stake here? They might die. Well, we go on to verse 52. What do we find Jesus doing at verse 52? Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. What is Jesus doing? He is doing God's will. He is fulfilling scripture. He is doing what was predicted of him in the Old Testament. But what are the disciples doing? Well, at the end of verse 56, it says, Then all the disciples left him and fled. They are giving in to self will. Jesus is involved in God's will. They are doing self will in order to protect themselves. Then we go to verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. What do we notice about, about Peter? Peter is a silent observer. He remains at a distance. Why? He, He doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He doesn't want to get involved. Yet he wants to see what's going to happen. He wants to observe, but he doesn't want to be included in this as bold as he was before. I will go to death for you. I will not deny you. No, he was a silent observer. But notice how Jesus is contrasted to that in verses 59 and following. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So you notice the disciples were silent. Obs- Peter was a silent observer, but notice about Jesus. Jesus is also silent, but it is silent self-control. What did he say to the disciples? Could I not call 12 legions of angels? Yes, he could Was this false information? Was it misinformation? Was it misunderstood? Yes. Could Jesus have spoken up and said, no, let me clarify this. Let me explain what was meant by this. No, he keeps himself silent. Why? Because he is on track of going to the cross. Well, there's one last one to look at here, and that is at verse 63. Look at the rest of verse 6. Look at verse 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This, of course, is a, a reference to Daniel about the Son of Man who will come in, in, on the clouds of glory and will reign forever. But then it goes on to say, 65, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now you understand what Jesus just did. Under oath, Jesus was willing to speak even though he knew that it would provoke them to anger because he was declaring himself to be the Messiah. He was declaring himself to be equal to God. He was declaring himself to be the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy and immediately the high priest recognized what what Jesus was saying. But what was Jesus doing? Jesus was following the course, and in this, Jesus was victorious. He was victorious in temptation. But what do we read about Peter and the other disciples? Look at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. Interesting, Jesus swears the truth under oath. Peter swears to speak the truth, but he lies. And what does he say? I do not know the man. Verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Remember the when, the what, and the how? Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out. And wept bitterly. What do we see about the disciples represented by Peter? What we see is failure in temptation. On Jesus' side, we see victory in temptation. On the disciple's side, we see failure in temptation. And so, if you go to the back side of your notes, there are a couple of questions that I want to follow in order to bring it to some applications here for us. First of all, what are the two factors that guided Jesus in his prayer? The two factors are, number one, it was his personal pain. His personal pain. Going back to verse 37, notice what it says there. Actually, verse 37, at the very tail end it says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Do you sense, congregation, that this was not an easy thing for Jesus? He was burdened in his heart. He could feel it in his soul. And what does he do with that personal pain? He wants to go to prayer. He wants to talk to his father. He wants to make it a matter of conversation with his father. But the second thing that he also includes is the father's will. Look at the end of verse 39. And he repeats this in each of his prayers. But at the end of verse 39, he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He has his personal pain, and yet he has the Father's will. These are the two things that come together. And so how do we make this somewhat personal for our own lives? When we pray in our difficult times. It is okay to complain to God. It is okay to bring your complaint to God and say, this is the trouble of my soul, even as Jesus did. Is there some other way, Father? Could there be another way than for me to drink this cup of going to the cross? But what is not okay? It is not okay to complain about God or against God. You see, that was the difference between Jesus, and for instance, the Israelites in the Old Testament, when they came out of Egypt, they were complaining about God. They were saying to Moses, why did you bring us out in the wilderness? Did you bring us out here to die? We want to go back to Egypt. You see, they were complaining about God to Moses. But when you take your hurt and your pain to God, maybe this doesn't feel quite right. But Jesus shows us how. And we have the pattern in the Psalm that we might take the deepest hurts and ask the, the most vulnerable questions that we have. God, how long will this last? How will I survive? It's overwhelming to me. Why is this happening? What's the purpose in it? It seems so meaningless. These are questions that we can bring to God, but we do so in faith. The second question is this. What conclusion did Jesus come to through His through prayer and through his praying. The conclusion that he came to is this. The conclusion is that he fully submitted to God's will. He submitted to God's will. Remember, he prayed, Father, if there is some other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How do we know this? He submitted to his Father's will, and we know this from a couple of instances... First of all, we can say that he held his silence. He held his silence. Going going back to verse 63. You notice that? Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. Why did he stay silent? He had an argument that he could have made. He could have answered the high priest who had misunderstood or took out of context the statement that he had made, but he kept silent. Why? Because it wasn't about him getting what he wanted in terms of avoiding the the cross, but he had submitted to the Father in going to the cross. And so he remained silent. He held his silence. But a second thing that we can point out is that he spoke under oath. He spoke under oath. Again, we had pointed this out before at at 63B. What did he do? And the high priest said to him, I adjure you. In other words, I put you under oath. You know, kind of like we do in the court of law. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's the oath that Jesus was required to take. In other words, Jesus, if you're not going to tell me the truth, may God curse you. And so Jesus, under oath, spoke the truth. And what did he say? probably even more than what Caiaphas was asking for, but he says, I'm the Messiah to come. I am the man from Daniel chapter 7. I am the one who is coming on the clouds of heaven, and I am the one who will have an everlasting kingdom, as you read in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. That was quite a statement, because that would be the statement that would send him to the cross. There's one other here that I didn't include in your notes, but it's also when When the disciple pulls out of his sword and slices off the servant's ear, what did Jesus do? Put put your sword away. (laughs) I I don't need your protection. One man with one sword? Really? Jesus says, don't you know that I could call down a legion, 12 legions of angels? I mean, it would only take one angel to defeat this mob, but he says, I could call on 12 legions. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's putting his hands behind his back, so to speak, as if to say, I have come to do my Father's will, and so I cannot call on those resources, even though they're right there for me. I could call on them, but I'm not going to. Why? Because I'm doing my Father's will. Well, how do we make it personal? Notice, I believe that Jesus was praying in order to submit, and that is how we are to pray as well. Prayer helps us to lead us to submitting to God. Pray in order to submit. And there are at least two general categories in our lives where this is important. It is important in those areas where we know what God wants us to do. We know the right answer. But, oh, our heart is tugging us in the other direction. And we feel the tug so strong. I know this is the right way. But I feel like I want to do this. It can be as simple as I know I ought to get out of bed and I'm going to be late for work if I don't get out of bed right now, but I want to lay in bed. It could also be sitting before the computer screen. I know I shouldn't be looking at this. I know I shouldn't, but I click on it anyway. You see, we need to pray in temptation. Why? So that we might submit to the will of God to do what we know He wants us to do. But there's another area in our lives where it's challenging to submit to God's ways, and that is when we encounter circumstances that are beyond our control. Probably circumstances that have nothing to do with decisions that we've made. An illness comes upon us. Maybe there's a financial turn in the course of life that affects us that was beyond our ability. Maybe it's a relational conflict that as much as you've tried, it just cannot be resolved and we can't seem to get together. Now, the temptation is to try to take it into your own hands and you respond with anger, with bitterness, with revenge or whatever the case may be. But you can't escape the situation it's in these instances where we also need to pray, God, give me the strength and the power not to give into the temptation to become bitter, angry, and so forth, but rather, Father, help me to accept your circumstances that you have given to me. And if we had the time tonight to share our stories, I suspect every single family has a story of a time or a season, and maybe you're in it right now, where you say, we've never been through something so hard. You see the need to bring this before God and to say, God, here's where the hurt is, here's the difficulty, and I can't see how it's ever going to be resolved. But I lay it before you. Help me to be at peace with knowing that at this moment, in this time, this is your will for my life. And then the third question, why was it necessary for Jesus to pray? Why was it necessary for Jesus to pray? Turn with me quickly to Hebrews chapter 7 we have a commentary that helps to give us perspective of what was all going on in in Jesus' prayer. Hebrews chapter 5, look at verse 7. Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Isn't that exactly what we've seen in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he he brought these prayers to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Then look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Look again at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Why did Jesus have to pray in his human nature? Jesus grew in obedience through prayer. Jesus was becoming the righteous one, you see. His obedience was necessary for your salvation and for mine. It was necessary for him to get all the way to the cross without turning away from it, without calling for the twelve legions of angels, without allowing Peter to fight for him, without keeping silence. Congregation, don't assume that the obedience of Jesus was easy simply because he was also the Son of God. Jesus, in his human nature, truly was troubled and suffered, and he grew in obedience through prayer. But the second thing is this in his human nature, Jesus was helpless. In his human nature, he was helpless. He needed the Father. He required the Father to help him in this moment. Why? Because he had, he had given up, in a sense, his right to use his divine nature to call on that legion of angels to come down from the cross, to defeat the Roman soldiers, to defeat Judas. He gave it up in order that he might go to the cross. And so in his helplessness, he had to pray. And what I want us to see, congregation, from this, to make it personal, is the, des- the destination of our prayers is not a pain-free life. Isn't that oftentimes what we want when we go to prayer? God, just take the suffering away. And When will this end? If we can only have an end to it so that it's over. But that's not the destination. What is the destination? It's a deep trust in God. You see, one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, it says here in Hebrews chapter 7 that, that God answered his prayer. He was going to death and God answered him. He delivered him. Did Jesus still go to the cross? Why, of course. And did Jesus die on the cross? Absolutely. Then where is the answer? Two answers. Number one, the answer to Jesus' prayer was that he was enabled to do the will of his father where the disciples in their prayerlessness failed to do the will of God. And the second answer to Jesus' prayer was on the third day when he was raised again from the dead. Yes, his his prayer was answered, but not before death, but after death. So congregation, we are to learn to pray like Jesus, but it's certainly more than just praying like Jesus. Yes, he teaches us through his example, but we are to pray because of Jesus. His death and resurrection opens the door of prayer. Because of Jesus, we too are allowed to pray like Jesus. It was his death that allowed us to come into the presence of God. Just as Jesus grew in prayer, we can expect to grow in prayer. And just as Jesus' prayer was answered by his Father, we can expect that our prayers will be answered by our Father. Maybe not as we would hope, but if we are praying, let your will be done. Not only will God's will be done, but it will be done by us in agreement with his will, accepting his will, submitting to his will. And in this way, congregation, prayer is an expression of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the death of Jesus Christ that allows us to have a relationship with God. What is prayer? A relationship with God. It is access to God. Access to God through, through Jesus Christ in prayer. Let me just close with this little story. This morning, I told our catechism class about a young man in prison that I met about a week ago, and he was very distressed. And I came alongside him, and I said, I I see you're a bit upset. What's going on? And he explained the case, and I said, is it okay if I pray with you? And he said, yes, it's okay to pray. Now, keep in mind, what I knew about this young man is he was a Muslim. He knows that I'm a Christian. And I prayed for this man, and I prayed for him in the name of Jesus. You say, wait a minute. May Muslims do that? He was not praying, I was. And the same kind of prayer that I would pray for him in my home, I prayed for him then, and I prayed for, for God's care and blessing on him, but I prayed in the name of Jesus. You see what I was doing? I was showing him the gospel. We were doing the gospel, coming to the Father through Jesus. I'm not suggesting that that converted that man, but I want you to see that that's the gospel. Coming to our Father with the hurts of life. And I suggested to our class, this is probably one of the easiest, naturalist forms of evangelism, because you're going to meet people all over in your life who are hurting. These prayers of Jesus, the laments of the Psalms, help to show us, how do I take someone to Jesus? How do I show them to take them to God the Father? These prayers help us. So let me encourage you, congregation, the challenge then is to put the gospel into action by praying. Pray in your own pain. Pray with and for those who are going through hard times, whether they be fellow believers or unbelievers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Savior Jesus Christ who has given to us an amazing pattern of prayer, who has shown us how to take the deepest anxieties of the soul, how to take the weightiness of life and death and the realities of this world, and how to express them in your presence while at the same time exercising faith. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus prayed and that he perfectly sustained the temptation at hand in order that he might be our savior and our mediator. And we thank you, O God, that he has opened up the way for us to come into your presence, to express our pain and our sorrow. Father, may you enable us to do your will. Lord, hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. We respond by turning in our songbooks once again. We turn to number 22C, number 22C, which takes us to the end of the psalm where we have the breakthrough. There is the answer of God's, uh, God's prayer to David's prayer and to Jesus' prayer. We stand and sing the three stanzas, of number 22C, keeping in mind, amid the thronging worshipers, Jehovah will I bless before my brethren gathered there. His name will I confess. The I is Jesus. We know this from Hebrews chapter 2. So keep that in mind that it is Jesus who is leading us in this song, number 22C. Please